0: mindfulness mode
1: happiness is available please help yourself
0: hey mindful tribe i'm really excited to be here today and also excited to tell you right here on the top of the show that you have an opportunity to win a really valuable prize so stay tuned listen to the end and you will find out how you have that opportunity to win and believe me you have a great chance of winning this. So stay tuned till the end of the episode and find out about this exciting offer. Hey, Mindful Tribe, welcome to the show. I'm here with a guest who is sharp, frank, and fearless. She's a Buddhist sex therapist, and she's a psychologist, author, and speaker. And she's written a fantastic new book, which we're going to hear all about. I'm here today with Dr. Cheryl Fraser. Dr. Fraser, are you in mindfulness mode today?
1: I am. I actually had a lovely mind and heart meditation uh, before I uh, sat down with you. Good to get quiet before we make all these words together.
0: (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Dr. Fraser, what does mindfulness mean to you?
1: You know, uh, mindfulness is not enough. So what mindfulness means to me is one aspect of a way of working with heart and mind. And very briefly, I draw that from uh, Buddhist teaching, it's not my original thought by any means, but there are seven factors to an awake mind, a mindful mind. So mindfulness would be the piece uh, from this view and and from a view I, I try to work from personally, the training of the attention part. But you can train your attention exquisitely and be a complete and utter jerk. I mean, you you could be a career criminal thief who's Mm -hmm. exquisitely mindful, deeply focused, locked on, no distraction as they steal the Mona Lisa, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, So to me, mindfulness is an absolute key aspect of not letting our brain run us around and be the boss of us, so to speak. But also um, I would suggest, and I think this happens naturally when one practices mindfulness, that there's also the qualities of curiosity and uh, pleasure and compassion and effort as well. So it's a bit of a long answer to your short question. That's okay. Well, Cheryl, you've helped
0: thousands of couples jumpstart their love life. So you've worked helping people with their passion, with their intimacy. How did you get started working with this aspect of people's lives?
1: <laughs> well, you know, it goes way back. Um To Sean Cassidy, to do Ron Wrong, the world's sexiest hardy boy, if people don't know, you know, sort of pop idol in the early 70s. And I was desperately, passionately, very sexually in love with Sean Cassidy. And I was completely convinced that he was my soulmate. Now, spoiler alert, Bruce, it turns out he was not my soulmate. (laughs) He did not come to my small logging town on Vancouver Island, sweep me off my feet, take me to Beverly Hills to live what? (laughs) Happily ever after that's where it all began this pattern that i think the majority of us as, as adults have of uh seeking love to fulfill us seeking the one oh I now teach kill the soulmate and save your relationship you know stop seeking for that one to make me happy from outside so the journey goes on i grow up i fall in love with a few flesh and blood sean cassidy's (laughs) Uh (laughs) and you know what it didn't make me happy ever after um and so i think you know being in the in the trenches of love and heartbreak and longing uh, i've always been a pretty introspective kid and adult and i I just started really figuring out why is long time long-term love so hard why is the divorce rate so high affairs are so high why does the the, the passion fade you know so often the couples i work with say one, one of these sad phrases you know i love them dot 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 but i'm not in love with them anymore and so i was very curious about that then concurrently in my uh, 30s i became a very deep uh student of Buddhism and uh, did multiple long retreats and studied in India and elsewhere, eventually Tibet. And that's where I found some answers to why are we unhappy? Why aren't we happy ever after, even if we've got a wonderful family, a lovely house, career that matters, being able to influence the millions of people you influence to think about their life, to think about who they are. And that eventually led to the combining of the two in the book, Buddha's Bedroom, and in the work I do now with couples and sex. Uh, Along the way, I got a PhD and um, Fulbright Scholar and I'm trained in sex therapy and couples therapy, but I felt... Uh, And I'm certainly not unique in in this, that there was something missing in couples therapy. There was something missing in the way uh, couples succeeded or failed in couples therapy. It's a wonderful medium. But where could uh, where could we bring it home in a new way? Uh, Very simply, it's not about if you're my partner, Bruce, you know, I drag you into couples therapy to say fix Bruce. Right. You know, smarten him up, teach him how to communicate, make him more romantic. um, You know, tell him I need to be seduced in certain ways and make him be my Sean Cassidy. Whether you're gay, straight, trans, LGBTQ, whomever we love and however we love, fix this person. Well, we all know how well that goes. Did you try it (laughs) this morning with your partner?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So then then you started helping thousands of couples and and. Now you are are still doing that. Do you usually do it Over Zoom or something like that, or do you do it in person? How do you do that? Yeah,
1: well, intriguingly, um, as I started seeing couples and doing this, doing the work of seeing two people in the room Mm -hmm. and and doing deep sexuality or or couples therapeutic work with them, years and years ago, and then along the way, um, I've got all sorts of other things I do. I was a talk radio show host in Vancouver for you know three hours a night every night. You know, ask Dr. Cheryl love and sex advice in so many ways, and all of that came together, uh, not without some blood sweat and tears my friend around how can i help more couples more effectively is there a model different from traditional at very best i could see 10 couples a week and i might see them for a year or two so fast forward rather quickly before the pandemic i created and finished an online immersion couples program with the vision that uh, i could get a group of couples 100 couples at a time. They've got a curriculum of the key elements and teaching points of uh, drawn from sex therapy, communications theory, couples therapy, marriage therapy, et cetera. And then I would also teach them weekly live in a group Q&A format because we think our pain is different. We think we're uniquely broken. And Mm -hmm. three of the words I say the most to any couple in any circumstance, even an unusual one is you are normal. So in the group setting for the weekly uh, interactive Q&As, you get to hear your problem, your deep pain, your embarrassment, spoken by someone else as well. So all that happened, and horribly synchronistically, Bruce, I debuted the program and offered it to the public for the first time February 2020. And as we know, in that month and the next month, the entire world changed. Mm -hmm. And when I was creating this as a model of how to deliver deep, meaningful work to more people in a unique way, I figured the one barrier to entry was an obvious one. People wouldn't believe you could do deep work online or in a group setting. And I think that's a reasonable doubt to have. And then because it became normal and typical to do any manner of deep training, connection and teaching online, I think that removed that barrier in couples. The final thing I want to say there, though, because I am a fan of typical couples therapy, I'm not here to diss my profession and my wonderful colleagues, but I wanted to reach more people. And I also wanted to create something, speaking of mindfulness, that people could... Repeat and refer to and go back to. So let's say you go to the best couples therapist in the world. I can think of a few that are my friends in the field. And you see them once every week, once every two weeks with your spouse for a year. And then you're doing much better. Where do you go refresh the learning? So so simply with what I teach, people have lifetime access to go back and watch any of it, to rewatch a live Q&A where they can hear that. And accountability and and homework and check-ins that we know as behavior theorists are, are predictive of success in anything, losing weight, exercise, organizing your office. So I brought that together to serve more people and I wanted to be very clear that it was still about mindfulness and still about what in the Buddhist philosophy we'd call awakening. So the 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 sneaky um secret mandate for my company, I do share it with the couples I work with, is the mission is to awaken the planet one couple at a time. Uh-huh. To create more compassion, more mindful communication, more ownership if our crap, um, that if I'm angry at you, mindfulness brings me to if I've got the courage and the the self-respect and respect for you to do it, if you're my partner, to say I'm mad at Bruce, I want to yell at Bruce and tell him to smarten up. Can I, first of all, very practically, as I'm sure you teach all the time, take a mindfulness moment, Yes. take a breath, what's actually going on and whether or not you know. But to the direct experience of right now, I feel angry and hurt, and then choose to speak or act differently. I make it sound easy. I fail at it all the time. I keep saying I have to get my hubby to sign a non disclosure agreement about what goes on behind closed doors. But I'm also very open about it because you know, and I know. It is very easy to understand the concepts of living a more thoughtful, kind, compassionate life. But I think it was the Buddhist, uh, the Western Buddhist teacher, Joseph Goldstein, that has a quote I love, which he says If you think you're enlightened, spend a week with your family. You know, if (laughs) you want your triggers. And I would up the game and say if you think you're enlightened and you've survived a week with your family while being kind, compassionate, open minded, and non judgmental, try it in your romantic relationship. Right, It's where the rubber hits the road. It's where we get tested. And the honest amongst us, which I think is almost all of us will admit that, that we're great in the classroom, we're great at work, mostly. And then we get home and we're kind of a whiny idiot sometimes. (laughs) So the stealth teaching in everything I teach, um, even in a very uh, seeming secular scientific couples therapy, there's always for me an element, what are you doing with your own mind? One slogan I think you'll appreciate very much—it's not unique to me in in concept. Again, is don't change your mate, change your mind. Ah, right. That's so a good Bruce one. is so forgetful. He was supposed to get cat food. <clears throat> I texted him to remind him because I know he's forgetful. There's a clue right there. I already know you're forgetful. Why should I expect it to be different today? Right. And you show up. Oh, I'm so sorry I forgot the cat food. I get to choose whether to go. Oh, for goodness sakes. I can never count on you. I'm just fed up. I've got to do everything around here. Or go, that's my sweetie. And he's forgetful. I will stick a a post it note on his steering wheel and he'll get cat food tomorrow. Or, radical idea, I'll just pick up the cat food because it's not his strength. And I love him. And he's a sweetie. And he's kind of an idiot in some ways, but so am I. How did you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, many, many years of training grasshopper and loving men as well as women and knowing that we're all kind of idiots. But yeah. you know, we we laugh together. But hear the liberty, hear the kindness in. Um, that's just Cheryl, that's one of her things. Yeah. You know, I love her, don't love this aspect of her behavior. Right. But that's my sweetie. That's my sweetie.
0: Yeah. Mindful Tribe, I want to make sure you've heard the name of this book that Cheryl has mm. written, Buddha's Bedroom, and the subtitle is The Mindful Loving Path to Sexual Passion and Lifelong Intimacy. And the foreword mm. is written by Rick Hansen and Jack, well, actually Jack Cornfield and Trudy Goodman. And then inside, I looked at it and I'm reading a little blurb by Rick Hansen, who said, a phenomenal book on intimate sensuality and equally Excellent about communication skills and mindful awareness. Wow, a wonderful book. And that's from Rick Hansen. So, wow, you've got some some stellar people backing you up with this book. What inspired you to write it initially and how long did it take you to put this book together?
1: Yeah, I... Well, what what actually inspired me, you know, so many of us that love to teach and we love to educate and help and heal to our limited abilities as best we can. Um, Actually, a publisher reached out to me. They'd uh, read a piece I wrote. I was a columnist for Mindful Magazine Mm -hmm. uh, for quite a few years, writing columns on uh, relationships and love and and mindful application. And they'd read something I wrote, thought it was skillful and helpful, Mm -hmm. I guess. And they reached out and said, have you ever thought of writing a book? And I said, yes, I have would you put together a pitch for us? So it Mm -hmm. it came there. Like so many things, I think, Bruce, I might have not written a book for four or five or six years otherwise without the, uh, you know, it's kind of nice when a publisher's already going to publish it for one thing. Um, So that started it. And then I was, I really knew I wanted to bring Buddha Dharma into the book. Um, I'm a passionate fan of secular mindfulness. Uh, It's one of the greatest health and mental health, uh, techniques, ways of thinking, in my view, in in the history of all time. Um, But I'm also passionate about the Buddhist psychological and philosophical teachings. So that's where I, I came up with, yeah, but I don't want it just to be the mindful book of relationship. I want also to teach in, I hope, a relatable, secularized language, interesting way, the basic fundamental teachings of Buddhism as well. And I wrote it over a year it mm-hmm. took about a year, um, not full time, a part time, but I got into a beautiful routine that actually was, I'm going to confess, accidentally mindful. I didn't have the wisdom at the time to say, let me design a mindful writing routine, but I fell into it. Like a lot of creative people, I think, if you're a, a what is it, a lark instead of a night owl, my best creativity is first thing in the morning. Oh, yeah. So I fell into, you know, I basically get out of bed, just going to keep it real, or get out of bed, have a pee, brush my teeth, make a <laughs> cup of tea, and I would sit and write For two, three hours sometimes, Mm -hmm. little breaks in between. And then I would take my dog for dogs for a long forest hike. I live on beautiful Vancouver Island and there's beautiful areas around here to hike. And on that hike, I wouldn't think about the book. I'd sometimes listen to a podcast or music. um, But in the background, you know, the subconscious would be bubbling and bubbling and bubbling. And I'd be on like a 90 minute hike and looking down at the ocean and I'd go, Oh, that's how that piece relates to that piece. You know, the Mm -hmm. eureka moment from the famous story. And uh, then I'd come back and write some more and wrap up about two in the afternoon. I wasn't rigid about it. I didn't have a Monday to Friday schedule. But I think it was that... The teachings themselves mean so much to me personally. I attempt to practice them, and I mean the teachings of good communication, working on your sexual life, all the couple stuff, as well as Buddha Dharma that although it was not easy, take it takes quite a bit to write a book, I'll say yes, <laughs> definitely <laughs> but um i was I was very. Humbled and privileged to be able to attempt to communicate some things I think are really important. So yeah, and then and then there it goes. And actually, uh, the book came out at not a great time in the zeitgeist, uh, the Me Too movement. A lot of things were happening where uh, publicity teams were very shy of sexual content at that time. Mm-hmm. So it didn't get a great deal of press coverage. And in fact, the the PR people at the publisher were told. We just don't want to touch anything to do with sex right now, even if it's how to have wholesome, loving, consensual sex with your partner. Um, But in the next quarter, one of my 2023 goals is I'm going to create an audio book. I'm going to read the book myself and create an audio book and make it uh, available in that way. I've had quite a few people over the years ask for that. The book's been out about three years and uh, I'm I'm blessed with a fairly well-trained voice and um, I really look forward to reading my own book out loud and then creating a book club, you know, for people that want to, you know, download it and where we can get together and and, and chew on these ideas together. And I can be re-inspired myself. The odd time I pick up the book to look for a quote and I'm like, dang, this chick knows what she's talking about. I should do what she says.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you've got a wildly popular podcast as well called Sex, Love, and Elephants. And why is it called Sex, Love, and Elephants? Tell Mindful Tribe.
1: (laughs) That is a terrific question. Um, Very deliberately, I'll use uh, an analogy I use a lot when I teach, particularly from the Buddhist point of view. It's it's, uh, from, I think, the Chinese side of Buddhism, but I'm not sure, is of the elephant and the monkey. So we're pretty familiar as secular mindfulness people with monkey mind. Um, Yeah, don't kick the monkey, love the monkey. It's trying to help. It's very confused. Um, But the elephant is uh, in this metaphor, you can imagine an elephant winding up a, 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 a path. There's all these beautiful scrolls illustrating this. I won't go into all the detail. But in the beginning, you know, the monkey's black and the elephant's white. And as they go up, the monkey starts to become more white. And at the top, they're both white. The mm-hmm. elephant represents, uh, I'll, I'll say it in sort of a Buddhist way, but and then in a secular way, your awakened self. You're already awakened self. Or you might say your true self, your deep knowing, your... Uh, not affected by ego and your own selfishness, just warm heart, consciousness, uh, et cetera. So the elephant already has all the answers and it's your elephant. Like we're already already fully awake. We're already fully enlightened, but it's like the sun under the clouds. I live in the Pacific Northwest. As you would know, it rains here a lot. And very often we look outside, we say, oh, I wish the sun would come back. Now, anybody who understands science knows that the sun is there, thankfully, or we'd all be dead, uh, 24 hours a day, being the sun, shining brightly. Our experience on a cloudy day, or in the darkness of night, depending on our hemisphere, is that the sun's gone. So the elephant is like the sun that's always present inside us, with wisdom, with compassion, with the ability to drop into our better self and say, I'm sorry I snapped at you about the cat food, honey, just feeling impatient and frazzled, it's not a big deal. And the cat's going, yay, I get tuna fish tonight, you know, because we're out <laughs> of cat food, it's all this. Um, so that's the elephant. Uh, so it's, it's again, you know, sex, love and elephants. It sounds like a quirky way to just catch eyeballs or clickbait. Yes. is that what they call it? Yeah. But it's literally me reminding myself that while a lot of the episodes I might be talking about, uh, you know, what to do if you have no sexual desire, uh, what to do if you have ugly repeating arguments and verbal abuse. I'm always reminding myself, I hope, that under it all is an elephant that's kind, that's compassionate, that's awake. And part of my job, ideally, is to help people meet their elephant mm-hmm. and come come, come from that place in in what they say and do. I uh, want to give a compliment to my hubby because he's very good when I'm caught up in ideas and thoughts and maybe selfishness, confusion, overwhelm. He'll say, well, what would the elephant do, hon? Huh? And then Cheryl Fraser, who's frazzled or tired or, oh, it's so stressful, I gotta do this thing today. At my best, I go, right, what would elephant do? Elephant would say, "Uh, you might be tired, but if you write this piece, it's gonna help somebody. Elephant also might say, today's a good day to treat yourself kindly and, and shut the computer off. Right. So inner wisdom perhaps would be a lovely other way to talk about our friend, the elephant.
0: So what jumps into your mind of a, a podcast episode that really uh, made an impact and maybe you got a lot of feedback and it was just really a lot of fun to do and you feel like it's a powerful message to send to people?
1: Ooh, I love that question. And I haven't looked back on them to think about it, but the two come to mind right away. Uh-huh. Uh, one I called, uh, I believe, um, Be the Surfboard, Not the Log. Mm. And it it was more from a Buddhist perspective. I think that podcast is a recording of a, a Buddha Dharma talk I gave when I was teaching Buddhism. I do that on occasion. I put those on the podcast after. And this one's about you know when you're being tossed around by your emotions or by life circumstances, like mm-hmm. in a, in, a, in a, you know a, a turbulent Pacific Ocean or Atlantic. I'm sure. Um, can you be the surfboard, not the log? The log's getting tossed around, out of control. Someone broke up with me. My boss fired me. Uh, 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 my mortgage went up by 25%. That's an outside circumstance. And it sucks. You know, we'd say that's one of the sufferings. But am I the log that's going to allow those circumstances to toss me around with no control, eventually, you know, dash up on the beach? Or am I going to be a surfboard? And learn to ride the ups and downs of life. So I really like that one as as a real good elephant episode. And then on the sexuality side or relationship side, the one that jumped to mind spontaneously when you asked me that was I did an uh, episode on a fair recovery, when there's been a sexual romantic betrayal in a committed relationship. And I got a number of persons uh, write me and thank me for the episode that had been the betraying party. I don't use words like cheater or anything. They're pejorative and not helpful. Right. So the betrayed party has transgressed. Uh, um, the be- No, the betrayer has transgressed. The betrayed party uh, was tran- transgressed upon. Mm-hmm. And... A number of persons who committed the betrayal, uh, gone against their their own sense of integrity and and taken actions that were harmful to self and other, really appreciated that I talked from that side of it as well. The amount of pain the betrayer is in. I've sat here. This is my former psychotherapy office. It's more of a studio now because I mainly work with couples in the online program. But right over there is the couch the Mm -hmm. couch sat over the years. Uh And um, I can't tell you the number of men and women, both heterosexual and gay and uh, bisexual, that have sat on that couch and sobbed their guts out to me and said, I cheated on my partner. And I don't know how that happened. I'm the last person you'd ever think would have an affair. I have great contempt for it. I think it's Horrible and crappy. I had a friend that stepped out on their partner once, and I, I basically cut them off. How did I do this? Most people aren't aren't players or serial cheaters or anything. So I spoke from that side, and I it, I was very uh, glad to know that it it helps some of the people who've betrayed that are we're all clear on the on the pain of the one who was cheated on air quotes. But the one who's transgressed and deeply hurt the person they love, deeply affected their family, may lose everything, their family, their partnership, their their marriage or, or committed relationship, is also in pain. And frankly, as, as uh, any any responsible adult would be willing to admit, they're also probably in pain because they may have cared about the person they betrayed with. So they're dealing with that. So I think I, I gave a balanced view that, you know, as, as a former boyfriend of mine, and I quote this a lot, uh, he says, we're all just bozos on the bus. We're <laughs> trying to get there the best yeah. way we can. Yeah, for sure. And it's a very forgiving, compassionate for self or other phrase. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm not minimizing that breaking our own integrity in any way financial, you know, fraud, uh, spending and not telling your spouse, whatever it is, that's not wholesome behavior. But enough with the judgment and the vilification and the bad good split. Let's look at how tough it is to be a compassionate, mindful person all the time, and we screw up. And who we are after we screw up interests me massively. One of the kindest compliments I ever got was along the lines of, Cheryl, you know, more than anyone I've ever known at this time, you really own your crap. When you screw up, you come back fairly quickly and own it and apologize for it and try to fix it or do better. Um, And then I fail again and again and again. But I really admire that in people. I really admire our willingness instead of defensiveness and excuses and storytelling about why we did it. Some of those have a place down the road, but that, it, yeah, that was not okay. That was not my elephant, so to speak. That was not my best self. And man, I, may I, I don't know. I just want to say Will Smith, the Oscars. Yes. I happened to be in a month-long meditation retreat at that time, so I was one of the only people in the world that didn't know about it. And I got out of retreat a couple months later, and someone mentioned it or or, or I heard about it. And I did a podcast, actually, on uh, Will Smith, The Science Behind the Slap. And one of the tenets I gave was, how dare all you people judge this guy on his worst moment that he did when he was physiologically flooded Mm -hmm. in fight or flight? That does not excuse what he did at all. But the pomposity and the hypocrisy and the, oh, my good, like he's, I don't know, different from us. And I said, if I had a a nanny cam in your house at your ugliest moment when you're flooded and what you say or do to your spouse, would you want that broadcast to a billion people? Definitely not. So that idea of, you know, work on your own stuff instead of sitting on your high horse saying, how could Bruce have done that?
0: Yes. Yeah, it's easy to be on that high horse, isn't it?
1: Yeah, especially with
0: social media, especially with this uh, world that we live in. Don't you think? <laughs> oh, my
1: goodness. Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So mindfully, uh look at your own stuff. Look in the mirror. Change your yeah. mind, not your mate. Of course yeah. I'm not saying, and I think this disclaimer is uh important ethically for us to say, I'm not saying if you've got an abusive partner, a physically abusive partner, a violent partner, you're in dangerous or unfair or unsafe circumstances, you should say, Well, I'll change my mind and accept that that's my person. And sometimes I need to say that because it could be misinterpreted. But ultimately, if I'm gonna have a fantastic relationship, if you're my partner with you. It's up to me. Who am I going to bring to you? Who am I going to be when I'm angry and upset or when I'm disappointed with you? And this is a lot of the practical skills I teach to couples. And a a good number of them are in the book, just for a quick way for people to, to get ways, how to talk with more mindful awareness, how to listen differently, what to do to apologize in a deep and meaningful way. And then there's the whole sexuality side. Because great sex is all in your head. Both men and women can have a a full and complete orgasm when they're fast asleep. So by definition, what if we worked with our mind around desire, around arousal? Uh, 30 to 40% of couples in a long-term relationship, and define that as more than a few years, more than three or four years together, 30 to 40%, according to research, are in a sexless relationship which is clinically defined as six or fewer times a year you make love with your partner. Now, I have the pleasure to speak to thousands of people about this and give them polls, And it's around 25 to 30% haven't had sex with their partner in many years. And this is not just people in their 70s. So don't don't think you're out of the woods if you're in your 30s and 40s. The lack of desire, the lack of healthy, beautiful sexual contact in long-term love is a major problem. And almost every time I share these statistics, people are surprised to hear it. And what they next say is, I thought we were the only ones. Right, You know, we assumed our friends all have a reasonable sex life because people do, right? Mm -hmm. And I said, wrong. So working with becoming aroused, attractive and desirous towards your long term partner is very much about mindfulness. Because do you remember falling in love with a partner?
0: I definitely do. do. Do you of remember
1: course. the feelings? What were some of the feelings that, that you might miss about how what it was like in the falling in love dating phase? Just just name a few yeah, of those. It
0: was just ecstasy. It was just like I was walking on clouds. It was like, oh, that's all I can think about. I was, oh, man. well, it's yes. so exciting.
1: Yes, <laughs> yeah. yes. And you know, there's some brain research to show that, uh, or to indicate that when we're in a falling in love mode, the brain biochemistry and the way it lights up does mimic actual obsessive compulsive disorder Oh, (laughs) in terms of we are obsessed, right? And of course, we're thinking, oh, and frankly, we're horny. Let's just keep it real. We think about and we're aroused. We'll we'll be like in a business meeting and feel kind of like turned on, flush of remembering of that goodnight kiss or that lovemaking. And um, a lot of that, and we know this, but we don't act as though we know it. A lot of those amazing falling in love feelings So what I call thrill. I have a, a model, the three keys to passion, the three key areas great couples need to cultivate. One of them is thrill. And we know that the the, the, the natural juice for being excited and thrilled, the way you've beautifully described and lit up, by the way, on camera, people hearing this just on audio, it's lit up, his face yes. lit up with joy and shininess. It's, it's novelty. It's yes. discovery. It's curiosity. It's new. It's exciting. Well, What happens after five years, 10 years, 38 years? Is it as exciting? And almost everyone will say, no, I'm bored with my mate. We're kind of complacent. We're just roommates. But that's a mind game. That's a mindfulness problem. Because I sometimes mention this silly movie. It's called... uh, I think it's called 50 First Dates, Drew Barrymore, Adam Sandler. The completely neurologically incorrect premise is that she's got some head injury where she wakes up every single day not remembering anything and has to start again. Yes. So Adam Sandler uh, meets her and falls in love with her. Um, And he, over time, over these many, many days, uh, creates a relationship in 24 hours because he keeps learning what she likes and who she is and what they share. But then when they are in love, the next morning she forgets. Okay. And he's got to start wooing her all over again you know where i'm going (laughs) i do (laughs) what if we brought that level of mindfulness every day to you wake up and instead of opening your eyes jumping up putting the coffee on letting the dog out you know giving the kid their backpack hey babe how you doing and running out the door you spent 30 seconds opening your eyes and i'm looking over if you're my person at bruce and you're snoozing or you're waking up or you're whatever and i just for a few seconds think in this moment it's new look at this person this perfectly imperfect person as i often say that i get to wake up with i mean how did you feel when you woke up in bed next to the person for the first time
0: (laughs) Yeah, pretty awesome. Yeah,
1: you were more mindful and <laughs> yeah. nervous, and and putting your better self forward, and maybe uh, making them breakfast. So people can roll their eyes. I give them full permission to roll their eyes. Doesn't make it wrong. Doesn't yeah. make what I'm saying wrong. If you want to fall in love with your partner again, it's it's up to you and how you work with your mind to create novelty, interest, and again, what I call thrill. This is the toughest of the three, and I'll mention the other two quickly of what I call the three keys to passion. The okay. three. I say the passion triangle. Thrill is the hardest one to recreate because we aren't Drew Barrymore's character with a head injury. And I remember maybe all the ways you've forgotten the cat food and worse over the years. And we're kind of grumpy and we don't talk deeply anymore. But people who want to, as I say, fall in love over and over again with the one you're already with, that's a mindfulness thing. But in case anybody's like, what are the other two? I call them (laughs) intimacy, thrill, and sensuality. And intimacy here, I don't mean as a euphemism for sexuality, which is a fine use of the word. But I'm using it here as more psychological communication intimacy. Do I know your inner hopes and dreams and what's worrying you these days? Do we develop, because none of us come out of the womb knowing them, and most of our parents did not model them for us, do we develop good communication skills, what you could call mindful communication, um, of realizing, as I often say, my partner's not wrong, they're just different. You know, I teach this exercise, the other side of the clock. I don't have a clock here, but we're going to hold up a clock to you with the clock face showing, and your spouse is in the room with me, and I'm working with the two of you. I'd say, hey, Bruce, you see this object here. Uh, pretend you're a Martian. You don't know what a clock is, and I want you to describe in as few words as possible what you see. And you'd say, okay, well, it's about a hand-shaped object, three, four centimeters tall. It's got, what? because you don't know what a clock is, so it's got like numbers around it and the circular pattern and these two sticky out bits pointing to the numbers. I'd say, great, 100%, you're the best. Meanwhile, your spouse is nervous because how can they get 100%? Now, I turn the clock around and it's a black back with a couple of dials and a, and a kickstand on it. Yeah, The clock's over there, but it's, it's ticking. So I actually took it out into the other room. And I say to your sweetie, I say, describe what you see. Use any words you want except clock, because you don't know what a clock is. Uh, well, it's a black object. It's got you know four sides, and it's got a little couple dealies on it and a kickstand. And then I say, who's right? And the two people usually chuckle, and they say either <laughs> we're both right or neither of us is right. right. I use that to build the foundation of how I teach couples to communicate mindfully. and And I get them to use the phrase. Hubby and I use it, too. Uh, if you and I are in disagreement and, you know, I think you're just an idiot and how could you possibly want another dog or how could you possibly want to sell up in Toronto and move to the West Coast? What's wrong with you? Whatever it is. I say, OK, OK, OK. I don't get it. And I'm getting super upset. Can you tell me how you see this from your side of the clock? Because right away, if you've had the simple clock demonstration, even just in an auditory form right now, you get that, oh, yeah, what my partner's looking at maybe. The same thing, the same clock object, but they're seeing it from a different perspective. And the only way for me to know what you see is to ask you because I can't see the back of it. I can't see the black or the kickstand. So I use that and it's uh, the the program I teach is 12 weeks, weeks long and it's immersive. And at the end, I say, what were a couple of the best tools you got from this whole thing? And we go into conscious orgasm and we go into, you know, working with sexuality changes as we age and what to do when you're in a sexless relationship, how to cultivate desires. So many things. The four divorce predictors from the, the Gottman uh, kind of training, the four ugly ways to fight. Invariably, I get two responses uh, dominating the couples that have been in the program saying these are the two things that helped us the most. One is the other side of the clock. It's Mindfully not realizing, not wrong, just different. Right. Help me understand what you see instead of cramming what I see down your throat, beating you into emotional submission till you finally say, okay, Cheryl, yeah, yeah, it's a clock. It's got whatever. Yeah, sure.
0: <laughs> that's a, that's that's awesome. That really is great. Uh, as we move forward, I want to ask you a question about bullying, because I've worked in the Ooh. field of bullying prevention for a long time. And I want to know if you have a story about bullying where mindfulness would have made a difference. And maybe it has something to do with intimacy. I don't know. But do you have a yeah, story yeah. you can share with us, Cheryl?
1: Yeah, I think I have two quick ones. And also, mm-hmm. I just want to formally thank you for making that your life's purpose. I'm actually getting a little emotional when I say that because it's such a beautiful field to work in. And of course, you'll never know how much influence you've made, but I suspect it's vast. Um, As a bullied kid. Oh, I had, I had a fun one. First of all, parents sent me to the only good school in our neighborhood, which was a Catholic school. And Mm -hmm. I was the only non-Catholic. So all the other kids told me I was going to hell. Right. And then because I'm a, I'm a bright little monkey, gifted with a very bright mind uh, after kindergarten, 2 months into grade 1 they booted me up to grade 2. Excellent idea. Academically it made sense, but let's pluck a kid 2 months into term and drop her in with all the grade 2s saying she's really smart. So yeah. A lot of bullying, um you know, I would sit alone on the swing set swinging mm-hmm. and crying and reading a book and no friends and all the things. Yeah. Um and what I think as a uh, someone who has been bullied, which is every single person listening, including if they were a perpetrator of bullying as a young person, we get bullied at work or in social media, or people just say, you know, they like like I had a, a very close friend that just had another friend dump them after ten years of deep friendship. Wow! Um, is can we bring mindfulness to the experience of the hurt? As uh, I don't like the word victim, but as someone who's been on the receiving end of poor behavior, let's mm-hmm. say. And, you know, to the little Cheryl back then, you know, a business coach, a friend of mine, he wasn't my coach, he's a good friend in the field. He uses the term Q-tip, quit taking it personally.
0: Oh. Isn't that good? That is really good.
1: And so when as an adult we're hurt, we're maybe a bit better sometimes at saying, I know this is partly their stuff, I got to look at my part, but so the mindful part of you know and and you're seeing me on camera here and i'm sort of holding my hands automatically above my heart can we bring kindness to the me that feels hurt mindfully which is self-compassion practice wonderful for people um, unfamiliar with that i'm sure you talk about it a lot but kristen neff has a website with some quick very accessible teachings on self-compassion i uh, you know this being me i am hurting right now i am human hurt happens I feel that the story is this other person hurt me, whether that holds water or not. Can I just be kind to the fact that this hurts? That would be one thing. Um, And oh, man. Oh, you'll like this one. Years later, 30-ish years later, 35, 40 years later, I... I, um, did all my academic training, all the things I did, moved from the big city of Vancouver back to my small town to start a private practice here. Mm -hmm. Um, And as I did that, I sent out cards to the local doctors just saying, new psychologist back in town, if you have patients, here's what I do. And I got a call from a a female doctor wanting to ask about my experience in eating disorders and whether a client she had might be appropriate for me. And we chatted a bit, and it was quite lovely. And then at the end, she paused and she said, Cheryl Fraser did you go to XYZ Catholic school? I said, yeah, I did. She goes, oh, I was in school with you. And I think I was really mean to you. Oh, wow. Isn't that something? That is. And I said, I chuckled and said, well, that, that would have been par for the course, but you know, I appreciate you saying it. She says, Yeah, you know, I'm really sorry. I said, thank you. Wow. And we hung up and, I had no idea who she was. No. I didn't recognize her name. And th- I think that is a beautiful story that I'd forgotten about. When, when yes. I knew you were a bullying expert, I I, I thought, oh, and that arose, as I told the, the childhood part. So there is someone, and I've already said on this podcast, I really admire people that admit they made a mistake. So there is someone in their own life clearly carrying some guilt and shame. Totally. Boning me, and no idea I was the same girl, and then the pennies dropping, and her going, "Wait a minute, Cheryl, at F- Fraser," and and saying that, and I hope it it did what it deserved to do for it was was let that go. Yes, let that go. I've owned about it. Letting it go. I was an unskilled kid at the time, a grade two, grade six, whatever. <clears throat> yeah, we're all boneheads. Sure.
0: I was a kid. Um, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So, like Will Smith, don't excuse the behavior, but what is the mind state behind it? Can we own it? Can we vow to do better? So there you go.
0: Great story. Thanks for Mm. sharing that. As we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this. Who is one person who has been a powerful mindfulness influence in your life, Cheryl?
1: That would be a fellow called Namjo Rinpoche, who was the first uh, person and first Canadian to be recognized by uh, the Karmapa, who's like the Dalai Lama in a slightly different stream as a fully awakened, reincarnated Tibetan. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whether you take that literally or figuratively doesn't really matter. But I was lucky enough to meet him in the last uh, four years of his life and study Buddhism and meditation with him. And one of the things that powerfully still affects me today, he passed away about uh, 15 years ago, mm-hmm. was I was in a one-on-one interview with him in, on, in, in the wilds of Ontario, mm-hmm. Kinmount, the Dharma Centre of Canada back then. Yeah. And um, i that was one of the times 20-ish years ago where I really was struggling with how do you bring Dharma and mindfulness and this wisdom together with regular life. And in an interview with him, I said, you know, Rinpoche, I realize as a a psychologist, as a psychotherapist, I'm helping people decorate their prison so it's much more comfortable. But from the Dharma and mindfulness point of view, I can help them see they're in a prison and they have other options. So huge influence. And for those that might be a little puzzled, the prison of I've got to work till I'm 65 and get a bigger RSP, or everything's going to go to hell. Um, If no one loves me, I'm useless. Um, Workaholism, not, you know, being grumpy, miserable, those kind of prisons that we create and we feel we're trapped in. Right. Versus saying, you know, I could quit my job, downsize my house, work at something more amenable for less money, live more simply. That is possible. The prison... I am the owner of the key.
0: Yeah. Yeah. My my next question is about emotions. How has mindfulness affected the way you deal with your emotions?
1: Well, I wish I could say thanks to mindfulness and all those four-month meditation retreats 12 hours a day, I don't have negative emotions anymore, Brucey. (laughs) 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 They've maybe decreased a little bit, but I have turbulent emotions. It's why I started Meditating was right. I could not control the anxiety and the racing mind and then mm-hmm. the grief and the the pain. So uh, absolutely, meditation has helped me relate to the unpleasant emotion with more wisdom. In, in, in seeing it, back to that uh, be a surfboard or a log, you mm-hmm. know, I'm being tossed around by these turbulent emotions, but can I be a surfboard because I don't know how to stand on one, so I'll actually be the surfboard. And say, this is really painful, there's tons of anxiety present, or tons of anger, or tons of sadness present, and and it hurts, but this too shall pass. And can I, um, having developed some meditation skill over over the years, I can now meditate in the midst of, and sort of in a more lovingly detached way, watch the storm, um, and that helps it decrease more skillfully so it's 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 in terms of not being um, drowned by and tossed about by the emotions and having a bit more capacity to to ride it until the next calm phase and then to strengthen those feelings of calm and compassion and curiosity and and and, and good heart and loving kindness uh, when you're in a calm stage, lift more weights, you know, to kind of yeah, help yeah. bolster those muscles as well.
0: <laughs> Cheryl, this is going to be tricky. But this next question, I have to get you to stick to 30 seconds because I've got another person that's going to be coming up for their interview. But tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice.
1: I said there was two things, couple love the most about my program. The second is the three breath hug. Stand face to face, embrace deeply, breathe in for one, slight beat at the top, breathe out for one at the same time Mm -hmm. and repeat twice. My hubby and I try to do it multiple times a day. It is a beautiful way to bring breath and all this esoteric teaching just into an immediate way to connect, let go and begin again.
0: Good. If you could recommend a book on mindfulness, of course, your book, Buddha's (laughs) Bedroom, is phenomenal. But are there any other books you would recommend?
1: Staying in the realm of sexuality and, and mindfulness, I would recommend my colleague, uh, Dr. Lori Brato's book um, on better sex through mindfulness. It's particularly for women. And it's drawn from some uh, groundbreaking, very important research at the University of British Columbia, Sexual Health Lab. And it's a, it's, it's a layperson's book for women who struggle with desire or sexuality issues and the people that love them.
0: Oh, fantastic. We'll put all of this in our show notes here at mindfulnessmode.com. Any apps which you can share that can help with mindfulness.
1: Uh, I don't personally use any of them, but I know the insight timer app, uh, some yeah. of my students really enjoy. And one of my students has put several of my Buddhist Dharma talks up on there um, because you can also get talks as well. Yes. And uh, I believe it's also free and I just hear yeah. great things about it. it so great. Uh, I'll give that one a shout out for sure. It's
0: great. Cheryl, as we wrap up the interview, any final words of advice for our listeners?
1: No one can make us live happily ever after. But as I believe it was Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese Buddhist teacher said, happiness is available. Please help yourself. So oh, that's great. Let's build that happiness from the inside yeah. out.
0: Cheryl, it has been an absolute pleasure to meet you, <laughs> to have you on the show. I've absolutely loved every minute of it. Thank you so much for what you do and for being on the show today.
1: Thank you. My absolute pleasure. And thank you. Thanks. Keep doing the great work and and helping change the world one breath at a time.
0: I will. Thanks so much. Bye now. Hey, Mindful Tribe, thanks again for listening to today's episode. I really appreciate you. I appreciate you liking the podcast, writing reviews on the podcast, subscribing. All of that really helps me with Mindfulness Mode. And uh, over here at Mindfulness Mode, we're just so excited to have so many listeners. Uh, 3.6 million downloads of the show. So you are helping to make it a success. And you can have an opportunity to win a free hard copy of Dr. Fraser's new book. And here's what you can do to have the opportunity to to win this. Send me an email, bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. And in the subject line, put the name of her book, which is Buddha's Bedroom. And in in the body of the email, answer the question, what is the name of Dr. Fraser's podcast? So send me that email. I will be looking forward to seeing all of your emails and by February 15th, you had till the 15th to send me this email and then I will be drawing three names and sending out three hard copies of the book to you. So I'm so excited to be able to do that. Dr. Fraser has very kindly agreed to send me these books so that I can send them out to you. So with that, Take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.